0: Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden.
1: And I'm your other host, Timothy Deal. And we are finally in 2013. We have made it, Nick. This is the last regular episode of the season. Yeah, and we did uh, two extra episodes. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, we explored 1913 and we dived more into the very first decade of the 20th century. But now we're here in 2013, and uh, again, this is not really an era where we can consider classic yet. No,
0: maybe it's only a decade ago, but there are still some really interesting developments in film history yeah. and some
1: really good movies that we hadn't seen. And it's always interesting to dive into the not-so-distant past mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, see. It's becoming history. It's becoming history, history that we have lived through and we know very well. So what is this week's movie, Tim? the tale of the princess kaguya which we might have pronounced or said differently last time but we've been corrected since then. that's why i had you say it to make sure it was pronounced right So, <laughs> well there we
0: go but before we talk about the movie itself let's talk about 2013 recap for us kind of what's happening in america at least
1: So when we talked about 2012, we covered a couple things. We talked about how the blockbuster age was still going on. The top 10 movies of, in America still included mostly franchise films. We talked about how, despite that, even though we say that this is the era of blockbusters, it doesn't mean that there are indies. So Settle Down, Martin Scorsese, you still get your fancy art house movies. Film's still easier to make, so a lot of people can do it. So that helps, yes. And we also talked about three new technologies. We talked about 3D how uh, that in some ways it had really already peaked and that is still the case here in 2013 even though 2013 saw the re-release of 3D versions of three classic films top gun, Jurassic Park and the wizard of oz did you see any of those no okay, okay. Jurassic Park might have been interesting that was the only one that I could almost see, but Wizard of Oz, really? Y 3D? Yeah, Y 3D? I yeah. don't know. Those flying monkeys, man. <laughs> Additionally, 3D showings of Gravity did very well when it came out. As this you year. could see. Yes, I could totally see. I didn't see it in 3D, but yeah, I it had a whole other dimension to it. Ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Of time and space. Yes. Another new technology that we talked about last time was the 48 frames per second thing that the Hobbit trilogy of movies were doing. That continues this year with the second of the Hobbit movies, The Desolation of Smaug. But that seems to be an innovation that really has not caught on because it just wound up looking too realistic. People don't want that much realism in their film. Yes, is what it seems like. Uh, And the third thing we talked about was Blu-ray, which had won the latest format war, but was facing competition from streaming video and has been slower in winning an install base. That being said, in January of this year, 2013, Sony did announce that they would have mastered in 4K Blu-Risk titles that were sourced at 4K and encoded in 1080p. Ultra HD Blu-ray disc layers that actually had full 4K capabilities would come a few years later in 2016. But with this announcement, 4K is kind of on the horizon. Mm-hmm. I would like to look into how widespread 4K implementation is. My guess is not a lot, but I know Cinephiles like it. Yeah, that's beyond me. I still use just normal DVDs. so <laughs> The thing is that with uh, everyone's gotten more used to streaming services mm-hmm. and with the streaming speeds, HD is you're doing pretty good. You're yeah. Gonna, a, lot, a lot of people want to want to wait for higher streaming capabilities, yeah. unless you're living in a big city. But anyway, so those are some of the technologies we talked about. Uh, Let's get back to film exhibition. Our our, our mini theme for the season. Our mini theme for the season, yes. We talked last time about the rise of multiplexes and megaplexes. But that started to burst in the mid-2000s. And I'm going to read from Wikipedia here. They point out that movie theater operators eventually discover that the problem with stadium-sized movie theaters is that they share the same flawed business model as stadiums. High fixed operating costs combined with the fact that very few films in any given year can actually fill all those seats. Average occupancy is around 10 to 15%. Nearly all major U.S. movie theater companies have ultimately went bankrupt as a result of this hasty development process. Among the few that were able to avoid bankruptcy were AMC theaters and Cinemark theaters. Wow. Yep. Like, big, 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 oh, too much, too much. Yeah. <laughs> which, I mean, we saw some of that even in Fort Wayne, which mm-hmm. is the, the big city closest to us. I mean, some of them lasted, they hung on, but, like, currently we still have the Regal Cinemas yep. and the Rave, which we got sold to AMC, if I remember right and then the one that was on dupont just yeah no longer there no longer there it was a whole big 20 screen megaplex that again you really have to draw people into the theaters and they just couldn't wind up doing it Makes sense if you can always fill it. Yeah. And it may be due to these high operating costs that theaters started to trim back the number of films being shown and again started focusing on the large blockbusters, mm-hmm. uh, showing them all day long at staggering show times. We talked last time about how having all these screens encouraged some more indie films, more, more yeah. niche things. And some say that kind of died out because of the uh, oversaturating the market. That being said, I've still maintained that indie filmmaking is still around and in some ways indie filmmaking has found increasingly a new outlet on television. Mhm. and streaming especially. Streaming especially. Yeah some of Netflix's first big hit shows would premiere this year in 2013, including House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. So it's it's a funny thing because TV and movies have long had a symbiotic relationship, but usually TV is kind of feeding off of movies to an extent, like techniques or story ideas and things like that. And also like movie stars would go to late night shows to promote their new upcoming movie and things like that. But now more and more we're finding TV directors writers filmmakers finding a new outlet for their creativity for sorts of stories that they can't do in or in the, as, movie. So
0: in the movie system as it is currently yeah, yeah
1: yeah for good or for bad depending on how you look at things. yes yes
0: <laughs> but this i mean this was happening in america but this film is actually not american this is a
1: second foreign film for the season
0: that's true this is from Japan, so uh, we should probably give a little
1: rundown of Japanese film history. Yeah, and I will try to fly through this as quickly as possible. Oh, give
0: us—we want an in-depth hundred years of, of <laughs> j- Japanese film history,
1: Tim. No, I, I'm going to try to skim the surface of this because this is an animated film. We need to talk a little bit about Japanese film history and a little bit about anime in general, yep. especially in relates to one of our favorite studios, Studio Ghibli. Yes, which is
0: wonderful. Almost everything they put out.
1: Yes. But so, again, skimming along the surface here on Japanese film history, which is a very long and fruitful history because the technology of film was first demonstrated in Japan all the way back in 1896. Nice. And the first Japanese film studio was built in 1909. So they embraced it as a storytelling medium pretty early on. And as early as the 1920s, samurai films were one of the most popular genres. We had westerns and samurai films. Yep, pretty much. Of course, by the time we got to the 1930s, the imperialist government basically took over the film industry and mandated propaganda films as that. It just happens. That's what happens
0: to film yeah. in this time period, it seems like.
1: Yeah, yeah. given certain governments, yes. Yeah. After World War II, once the American occupation of Japan began, even the Allies managed certain aspects of the film industry until 1952. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of oversight. and They
0: wanted certain things not to be filmed, probably. Yes, yes, basically, basically.
1: The 1950s are considered the golden age of Japanese cinema, thanks to artistic masterpieces by Akira Kurosawa, Yasuhiro Ozu, and others. Some of the classics from that era include Tokyo Story, which mm-hmm. we name-dropped earlier this season, Rashomon, and The Seven Samurai. Yeah. So, again, some of the big classics of Japanese film came out in this decade, including the kaiju genre, Yes, which was born with Gojira, or Godzilla, the first Godzilla movie, in 1954. And if you want to hear more about that You'll go
0: to our uh to the Monster Island Film Fault where you'll get more history about kaiju films
1: than you knew existed. <laughs> and lots more history about Japanese cinema.
0: Yeah, a lot of great stuff that we're we're barely touching, but host Nathan Marshan can certainly fill you in
1: on the details. Indeed. Moving on, let's note that running from the mid-1950s to the early 1970s, uh, Japan had its own new wave movement that was inspired by the French new wave with similar ideas, neorealism, hard-hitting, artsy I movies. I not want to have a, like an old wave. Like, we're just going
0: to go back and be stodgy. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't know <laughs> about that. That's how film works, I don't no, think. Not or art. Not really. I mean, that's more like your retro nostalgia. Yeah, that's more
0: a renaissance. You don't say old wave;
1: say renaissance. (laughs) There you go. And I'm going to quote here from Wikipedia. In the 1970s, saw the cinema audience drop due to the spread of television. Total audience declined from 1.2 billion in 1960 to 0.2 billion in 1980. That's a strange way of putting that because Japan doesn't have a billion people. It says audience dropped. So oh, I weird. Okay. I assume what they mean is like the revenue dropped from like 1.2 billion yen to oh, 0.2 okay. billion yen. But still, there's a giant drop. Yes, over a period of 20 years, that uh, is a very giant drop. And they continue. To decline in the 1980s, but anime was growing in popularity oh, I've heard at the that time. now. Yes, I was, imagine it was, so. It was brand spanking new in America, it seems like, when we were in college. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it wasn't quite, like. but... Not quite. So let's pivot on to talking about anime here. Now, Japanese animation goes all the way back to 1917. Which quite old. Yeah. Which is very old, yeah. I mean, early, early filmmakers doing experimenting with animation but the style of what we consider anime today began in the 1960s with tv shows developed by osamu tezuka most particularly astro boy and by the style we mean very limited animation but like you see it the big eyes expressive faces expressive faces the images one at a time are striking and less focused on smooth movements like you would see in early disney movies now question i assume
0: maybe you don't know that manga was predated Astro Boy style or did Astro Boy influence
1: manga? Um, geez, uh, that's a good question. I know in the 1970s saw an increase in the popularity of manga, so okay. I, wa- I want to say it started beforehand. I'm sure there was... There was a give and take back and forth, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure Tezuka was taking some inspiration for that. I do know a lot of his inspiration for Astro Boy came more from like 1930s Western animation. Okay. Like the big eyes where Betty Boop was a big yep. inspiration for okay, that. that makes sense. And if you look at that, that style back then, it looks much more akin to like 1930s kind okay. of character style. But I'm sure that they, the influence went back and forth. But while we're talking about the 1960s, this is also the decade when Isahao Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki began their careers. Takahata will be the, the director, director of this movie and a founding member of Studio Ghibli. But right now in the 1960s, Takahata directed his first feature in 1968 called The Great Adventure of Horus, Prince of the Sun, which was later released in America as The Little Norse Prince.
0: Oh, interesting. Have you seen it?
1: I have not seen okay. it, but apparently it was, it, it didn't do commercially well at the time because apparently a lot of, even at that point, even Japan animation was targeted a lot toward children, and this okay. was really meant more for young adults. Oh, okay. So,
0: he was already kind of breaking some of the traditional romp Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's now considered as, as a beginning of breaking the mold, a very early mold. So, it was a pretty innovative movie, and both Takahata and Miyazaki worked on that. Okay. Again, Takahata being the director, but Miyazaki doing a lot of the actual animation. Moving on to the 1970s, we talked a little bit about manga and how it was, at this point, it was being adapted into anime, including Lupin Yes, who we have familiarity with through uh, the Castle of Kagegostro. Which but is wonderful. Takahata and Miyazaki collaborated a- again on that series. They took over, I guess, the first anime series for Lupin the third started with one director the network wanted to change and so they replaced that director with takahata and miyazaki and so okay. they, they did like about two-thirds of that series yeah, i knew
0: that, i knew that, i knew miyazaki had worked on that original series that's one of his first series he worked
1: on is it yes okay. yes but there was another there's a later follow-up series of part two okay so it, it wasn't called part one at the time but anyway that he was not as involved in okay but yeah, anime was dominated by mecha series at this time. Gundam sort of stuff? Gundam sort of stuff. It was a little early. I think Gundam came, would come in toward the very end of the decade, if okay. I remember right, the first Gundam series. Uh, I forget some of the other big names, but, but Takahata was not doing that kind of stuff. He he leaned more toward pastoral series, including Heidi, Girl of the Alps in 1974, and Anne of Green Gables in 1979. That's fascinating to me. I'd like to watch one of those. It'd yeah. be interesting. Apparently they were part of a series of Adaptations of world literature, okay, on, interesting. In anime. And so, yeah, I guess Heidi was the first one he did, and they like, hey, you, you did it well with that. Let's do this Anne series. But yeah, fifty episode series of Anne and Green Gables it does sound interesting. Yeah, and Miyazaki again collaborated with him on uh, those things. In 1984. Miyazaki directed Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which you might have heard of if you're a Ghibli fan. It was an adaptation of his own manga that he had started. Its success enabled Miyazaki Takahata and producer Toshio Suzuki to found Studio Ghibli with funding by Tokuhuma Shoten Publishing, a publishing house in Japan. Their success inspired other big anime movies, including Akira in 1988, which initially didn't recoup its costs, but it earned worldwide attention. Yeah, I mean...
0: Akira was one of the first movies I remember thinking I'd never seen it, but like that was like the anime movie. Like, you, if you want to get into it, you go watch Akira. Yeah,
1: yeah it was a pretty foundations. Like, it made it people stand up and pay attention. Yep. And and so were the films of Studio Ghibli, yeah. including Takahata's film *Grave of the Fireflies*, which also yes. came out in 1988. Oh, that, okay. Which Roger Ebert called uh, one of the all-time greatest war movies. It's, are, it's a very good movie. A Very good movie. Very important movie. The Japanese anime industry slumped a bit in the early 90s due to a national recession. But in 1995, the massive success of the film Ghost in the Shell and the TV series Neon Genesis Evangelion, which you might have heard us talk about before a couple times, at least, (laughs) it inspired renewed creative fervor in the the industry. Studio Ghibli found increasing international acclaim with Princess Mononoke in 1997 and Spirited Away 2002, which was a winner for Academy Award here in the United States for Best best Animated Feature. Everything think everywhere that year, it seemed like, like Berlin <laughs> Film Festival. And yeah, there. I mean, the Oscar for animated feature is in some ways more a popularity contest, but at least at that time, it, it got them a, an award here in America. So yeah. I'm thankful for that. And also, the, the Studio Ghibli's films, some of these, like Mononoke and Spirited Away, they're the highest grossing films. Spirited Away is particularly what's the highest grossing film in Japan for 19 years. Wow. Until another a later anime movie in 2020 usurped it. By the early 2000s, according to one thing I saw on Wikipedia, but this wasn't referenced so take it with a grain of salt. It says that anime accounts by this time for 60% of Japanese film production. Wow. I'm not sure that's accurate, but I can believe it. It is certainly going to be as profitable, if not more worldwide, as it is domestically. It's mm-hmm. just a, it's a huge market for Japan. It doubled in market value from 2009 to 2019, all the way up to $22 billion. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I mean, it's everywhere now. It's everywhere. You know, yeah. po- If you know Pokemon, uh, you know anime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, that's a microcosm of Japanese industry.
0: But and talk about that.
1: Yeah, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are already familiar with some of Studio Ghibli stuff, whether My Neighbor Totoro or Spirited Away or house Moving Castle. Yeah, How's Moving Castle very popular. I mean, it was a fun thing in the 2000s to introduce people like building the cult of Ghibli in, yep. in some ways. So by the time we get to this year, 2013, it is a pretty well known studio, even here in America. Yes, exactly.
0: But let's go back real quick to America. So what's the notable films
1: going on here in 2013? Well, the top grossing film was Frozen. Frozen? I've heard of that one. Yeah, I remember it staying in the theaters forever. (laughs) It narrowly beat out Iron Man 3. They both earned over $1.2 billion, making them among the 50 highest grossing films of all time. And Frozen became the second animated film after Toy Story 3 to gross $1 billion, and became the highest grossing animated film at the time of its release. And Iron Man 3 became the second film in the MCU to gross a billion dollars. Wow. So it's a big year for blockbusters. Yes, indeed. The Oscar winners for the year, Best Picture, went to 12 Years a Slave. Best Director went to Alfonso Cuaron, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, for Gravity, which was a great movie. It was a great movie. Best Actor went to Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club, and Best Actress to Kate Blanchett for Blue Jasmine, a movie that I don't think I've heard of since the Oscars. Yeah, I don't remember
0: hearing it back then.
1: Yeah. My other nominations for this week's episode, one was 12 Years a Slave, which I remember hearing was very powerful. It, it is. I have seen that one. Yeah, have you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It would have been a very dark end to the season, though, yes. from what I understand. And the other nomination was Captain Phillips, starring Tom Hanks, which, even though hadn't mentioned it, it did get nominated for several Oscars. I don't know that, that it won much. But, but we had Tom Hanks on once this season. That's right. That's right. <laughs> couple other events from this year I want to note. On April 4th of 2013, film critic Roger Ebert passed away. Uh, we've mentioned quote him, him like Almost every episode. We quote him a lot because he was a great film critic. His final review was published posthumously two days after his death. A review of Terrence Malick's To the Wonder, which I have not seen the movie, but the title sounds very appropriate for Roger Ebert. I'm sure he would have enjoyed this movie, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, yeah. if he had had a chance to see it. This year, among the film debuts, I didn't recognize a lot of names except for two. Lupita Nyong'o, she played Black Panther's love interest mm-hmm. in his movie. And I think she also did the, the motion capture for Maz in the Star oh, Wars okay. sequels. Yeah. But she got her debut actually in 12 Years a Slave. And uh, Maisie Williams, who I think is mostly famous for Game of Thrones. Okay. I know her for, she had a recurring role on Doctor Who during- yes. um, during... Uh, Cabalty's run. Yeah, during, I think his during his second season, which was probably his best season. Yeah, I think you're right. Yep. So there you go.
0: That's the history. That's Life of Film in 2013. Not Life of Pi. Um, <laughs> but what is this movie, Tim? This handmade movie from
1: Japan? This is The Tale of the princess Kaguya, directed by Isahao Takahata. The version we watched, we watched with the English dub. Which worked really well, I Which thought. works really well. Usually Studio Ghibli movies do have a great dub, and I can see watching this either way, especially since it's set in Japan. Yeah. But in part, just so we could have nice sound clips for you folks. <laughs> <laughs> but we watched it with the English dub, which stars Chloe Grace Mortez, James Kahn, Mary Steenbergen, and Lucy Liu. Weird fact, Nick. Yes. The husband and wife from our last movie, Elf, yeah. Also played the husband and wife in this movie. That is really a weird coincidence. <laughs> it is a very strange I, coincidence. Wha- that makes, why? <laughs> <laughs> Ten years later, here you go, Random the movie we picked. Yeah. world is strange. It was not expected. But this is an animated historical fantasy that retells one of the oldest Japanese folk tales, The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, which dates back to the 9th or 10th century A.D., and this is a very common, well-known folktale in Japan. There's like one a of, our, of, like one
0: uh, of Grimm's fairy tales, sort of.
1: Yeah, basically. It's been adapted to lots of different pop culture things like Naruto and Dragon Ball and Sailor Moon and Inuyasha and yeah. I mean, live like, action stuff, too. It's like Cinderella. It just shows up everywhere. Yeah. There's some version of it, even if it's not directly Cinderella. Right. So this this story would not be unfamiliar to Japanese audiences, But since American audiences are probably most of our listeners, I will still keep some of the ending details a little vague. But the story begins when a bamboo cutter discovers a tiny girl inside a glowing bamboo shoot. He takes her home to his wife, and they decide to raise this gift from the heavens as their own child, although she grows astonishingly quickly and is known as the little bamboo among her village friends. However, upon finding gold in another glowing bamboo, the bamboo cutter is convinced the heavens want him to raise his daughter like a princess. So he forces his family to move into a palace at the capital and gives his daughter a governess to train her into becoming a noblewoman who will become known as Princess Kaguya. Saddened to leave her country life behind, Kaguya is not thrilled at the demands of becoming a noblewoman, and when five suitors come calling, comparing her to mystical treasures— she sends them out in search of said treasures before she will consent to marrying any of them. But along with suitors, the rigidness of nobility, and her longing for the countryside, Princess Kaguya and her adoptive parents will also have to deal with her divine origin and whether her attachments to Earth are as lasting as they wish. This is a color film. Mostly it's muted color palette, uh, the screen ratio is 1.5 or one pretty close to 16 by nine. The length is 137 minutes, two hours, 17 minutes, which makes it the longest studio Ghibli movie to date. It is rated PG for thematic elements, some violent action and partial nudity, which is, uh, some breastfeeding from some moms and some babies running around half naked. Half naked. It's yeah. Yeah. So just recipes. It's, it's nothing scandalous. This has a very atmospheric haunting score by Studio Ghibli mainstay Joe Hisashi. Surprisingly, this is the only time Hisashi scored a film directed by Isaho Takahata. Interesting. Now, Takahata, as the producer for Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, did initially hire him for that movie. He selected him for that movie. So Hisashi always felt like he owed Takahata a lot for basically helping him, yeah, giving him his start. Yeah. And this was the last film directed by Isaho Takahata before his death in 2018. Okay. Uh, He died from lung cancer. So, yes, last time, but he finally, at the end, got to work with Mr. Hisashi for that. So that's the summary. So was this successful when it was released? Uh, Yes and no. It topped the Japanese box office upon its release in November 2013, and it was a top grossing Japanese film with a worldwide total of 27 million. However, estimates put the budget around $49 million, which <laughs> wow. would make it one of the most expensive Japanese films ever produced. So not just animated films, like films ever? Films <laughs> ever. Wow. Yeah. Now, thankfully, this was financed ahead of time by someone who was a fan of Takahata's work. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it was the head, I forget, the, I don't have the name in front of me. Uh, so let Takahata do whatever he wants, basically. Like, make us a film. Basically. The thing is, going into it, Takahata was infamous for going over budget and over <laughs> Schedule. Miyazaki once said that he he was a great friend of Takahata, a long time collaborator, yeah. obviously, but he, alf- he also often drove him nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I Mi- can see that. Miyazaki said that he was convinced that in a past life, Takahata had been a sloth. <laughs> <laughs> and Miyazaki seems very um, particular himself. Yeah, yeah. So. The, the, they were both perfectionists, so when their perfectionist ideals butted heads, I think uh, some sparks flew. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As a comparison, Miyazaki's final film, "quote unquote" final film, is he working on one right now? Uh, yeah. Well, no, actually, one just released in Japan earlier oh, this year. Okay, it's, it'll be coming out in America. We, we in have to this, watch that this December. Yes. Okay. Uh, actually, probably really close to the time this episode comes oh, nice. out. Okay. But for a while, it was going to be his final film, "The Wind Rises," which released in July of this year. Originally, these two films were actually supposed to release together—a double. Is that a, a, a double year old
0: film now? Oh man, I feel old. Okay.
1: <laughs> yes, but originally these. We're going to, but since they were behind schedule, Kaguya had to be pushed back to November. Okay. Which would have been the second time Miyazaki and a Takahata film would have been released as a double feature. Previously, they had done My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies as a double feature. Ouch. <laughs> I can't imagine how that would have worked. <laughs> I guess I guess if you'd play Grave of the Fireflies first,
0: you can palate cleanse it with Neighbor Totoro. I would hope so. I don't do it the other way. Yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't crush all your dreams. <laughs>
1: Um, but anyway, as a comparison, The Wind Rises also released this year. It had a budget of thirty million dollars, and it earned one hundred and thirty-six million worldwide. So again, that's partly Miyazaki was the better-known no, name yeah. among families, particularly. Yeah. But it also helped that the critics loved it. Okay. Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times called it a marvel of Japanese animation, a hand-drawn painterly epic that submerges us in a world of beauty. I would agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. David Ehrlich of the AV Club said it distills a millennium of Japanese storytelling into a timeless film that feels both ancient and alive in equal measure. Also true. Carlos Aguilar from IndieWire named it one of the best Japanese films of the 21st century and called it an artistic triumph that delights with exuberant handcraft where each pencil stroke comes alive on screen. Takahata made something at once pastoral, timeless, and epic in proportion with an emotional depth rarely seen in films, animated or not. Those are some high praises, those three quotes. Indeed. And This movie currently has a 100% tomato meter rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 97 reviews. And Nick, only six movies from the entire, this entire decade wow. still have a 100% score. That's impressive. It is. Oh, you don't, I'm just curious. Do you know any of the other movies that have 100% score? Not off the top of my okay. head. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh. I didn't note that down. Okay. This movie also won the Animation Film Award, at the Mayan Film Awards. I believe that's a prominent award in, in Japan. Oh, got okay. in Japan. Okay. Yeah. And it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature Film. It did not win, although I think it should have. What won? Big Hero Six, which mm, I mean it's a good movie, it's a good but, movie, but ah, it's like it, I said the animation category is almost more of a popularity contest Big Hero sadly. 6, it's probably the more like popular movie,
0: but this is this, this is beautiful and artistic and it it deserved yeah. it would have deserved yeah, to win it yeah. It's a little early. Do we know of any differences it made necessarily in uh, people's thought process, artistic influences?
1: It is hard to say. I don't know many movies that look like this <laughs> yet. Yeah, it's very unique. But it is a highly esteemed entry in Studio Ghibli's canon. I think it's just a matter of time before some future animators cited it as inspiration. It did rank in the popular Japanese film magazine Kinema Humpo. Or maybe it's Kinipa Jumpo. I'm not sure which is the proper way to pronounce that. But they ranked it at number four in both their best ten, I think, of the year. It's a little vague, the translation we have. And the Reader's Choice Awards. Okay. So it is a very highly esteemed movie.
0: Okay. This is really strange, you know. I mean, think about it. What what
1: if she's a woodland sprite or something? What does she look like to you? A little baby, of course. That's right. But she was a beautiful princess just a moment ago. Well, I have to believe that's heaven showing us what a beautiful princess she's going to become someday once she's all grown up. You're right. Of course. So that means we have to raise the baby properly right from the start.
0: Yes, that that must be it.
1: I see. I'm glad you understand. (laughs) I'll be right there helping.
0: Well, everyone seemed to have loved it. Except economy awards.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they liked it. They right liked they it. liked it, okay. Probably not uh, enough of the voters had actually seen it. That's probably true also. But had you you had heard of this previously, correct? I had heard of it because my sister had bought it on a whim, I think, at some point, and then lent it to me. It's like, Oh yeah, you should watch this, but be prepared. It's not a you know, it's, it's a little bittersweet. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Yes. I should see. It. I like Studio Ghibli and I had it in my cabinet for several years. <laughs> okay. And then we pulled it out for this. And we pulled it out for this. So once, once this episode is all edited, I finally give my sister her DVD back. <laughs> nice. Nice.
0: I had not heard of it. Even the Studio Ghibli films, I've not seen near as many as you have. I've seen mainly the Miyazaki and a few extra ones. <clears throat> so I did, not I was not aware of this one, but once you told me about, it, I'm like, yeah, let's watch this thing.
1: Yeah. This is how Takahata's fifth film that he did for Studio Ghibli. And I think I've seen all the others, although Pompoku, I think I've only seen in part. Okay. His other ones are Grave of the Fireflies, which you mentioned. Only Yesterday, which is kind of a nostalgic look back sort of story. Pompoku, which is a family. What's the one with like, they're at school and they have the giant old house they all live in? Oh, that's Up on Poppy Hill. That's by Goro Miyazaki. Okay. Miyazaki's son. And... Okay. Probably the one successful movie he's done for them so far. (laughs) I'm sorry to say. Let's see. Pamboku is a fantasy with talking Tanuki. Okay. And then My Neighbors the Yamadas, which is an adaptation of a comic strip, basically. And that one is, in terms of style, is the most like this, but we'll get to that in a minute. So I guess let's go ahead and before we uh, go
0: much farther, let's hear what we thought initially after watching it last week.
1: This was fascinating. Um, beautiful animation, of course, to be expected of the Studio Ghibli, although a very different style, kind of sketchy, less less lush in other ways, more simplistic. Very much felt like it was a fairy tale. At least you could see kind of the bones of the fairy tale in here that they built on, kind of fleshed it out, in other words. Just more details made it a bigger story in some ways. But yeah, beautiful but very tragic. Nick, what do you have? Yeah, beautiful the art
0: style lends itself to being very intimate, and personal. Very joyous but gets more and more melancholy as it goes. Compelling, but yeah, the the ending is certainly um kind of a more yeah, more melancholy. You yeah, know, I'll just leave it there, I guess.
1: Enchanting and sad. The back of the cover talks about princess kaguya committing a crime and most of the way through the movie i'm going what? what what do you mean it's the dad that's at fault and of course the dad drives me nuts most of the movie and towards the end it, when she explains things it makes marginally more sense yeah it's got a i felt captivating mystery about it i thought the visual style is very interesting the art the graphics I didn't know what to expect going into this. It started kind of slow, but then I got Thumbelina vibes. (laughs) Like true, well, let's say, I don't know, true fairy tales. Unlike Disney fairy tales, you know, more of the true, like where the Disney stories originated from. This feels like one of those, you know, it's it's not happy. It has some moral or, or some story to tell. It really pulls your heartstrings. I mean, you really feel for this girl. I'm like, somebody make her happy already. <laughs> um, I just like the, the whole what she desires is not at all what the world thinks brings you happiness. I think this one will remain with me for a while. Just it's a lot to think about.
0: You tell that all of us just were really captivated by it. It was a very, yeah. we use words like enchanting, compelling. I also uh, hear a, a more somber tone in our voices yeah. there than we often have. Yeah, it just kind of leaves you in just like oh. thoughtful and emotional and it's a very good movie. But let's talk about some of the things, we can't talk about the whole movie yet, but one thing we noticed, I think, is just artistically it's very different than anything we've seen. Yes. So it's animation, but it's very watercolor. It's very, I don't know if simple is the right word but was well, stylized at least.
1: Yeah. It was a, a definite choice in Taka. I've been reading and I watched, there's a documentary behind the scenes, which I had, don't I haven't often watched, but man, I love the Ghibli stuff. And so I was fascinated. So my neighbor's, the Yamada's, is the closest Ghibli has done to doing something like this. Okay. The very minimalist background where he's not filling out the entire, all the No, like the on the edges, it's almost just blurred or white or... Yeah, the backgrounds are watercolored, And also the drawings themselves is not traditional cell animation. Yeah he really wanted to get the original sketches because he talked about how when you're originally sketching something, there's a certain energy to it that mm-hmm. then the more you have to kind of draw over that, it loses some of that. that it becomes more solid, but less energetic. Right, yeah. right. And so my understanding what they did is they they brought in the sketches to, rather than coloring them, like the sketches are hand-drawn, yeah. like on paper, but rather than coloring them like you normally would and putting them on, you know, the plastic things. The coloring is done in a computer. Okay, and then that's placed over the water. The backgrounds are all watercolored, which presents its own problems sometimes, especially if you're trying to move things, mm-hmm. which is watercolor is a bit less forgiving than other kinds yeah, of paints. Yeah. Apparently, this really disrupted the, when they did. He did something like this with my neighbor the Yamadas, and it really disrupted the Ghibli process okay. at, at that time. And that's one reason why that movie came out in like 1999 and it was, did not do well commercially. And so it took until 2006 for them to finally convince Takahata to do another movie. Okay. And then it didn't come out until 2013. Wow. So it was, it was in production for eight years. I
0: mean, you can, you can see just watching that it is very lovingly put together. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not an artist, but you can just tell like everything's on purpose. Yeah. Nothing's accidental or just random.
1: And they're able to use because of the the way they're using these sketchy drawings, they're able to mold them and worry less about character models in some mm-hmm. ways and, and sometimes exaggerate. Like there's a moment where she runs out of the house just furious and yep. and she becomes a blur and the backgrounds become and a blur. It's very and effective. It's super effective and it's it's really neat.
0: And the great thing, not only is it visually interesting. I mean, a lot of movies are visually interesting, but then like the story is just there. Mm-hmm. But, like it's a very well, compelling story, but also it's it's organized. It presents these themes that keep kind of building on each other and then get to the end you're just like, okay, what do I do with all this? In a good way. Yeah. Um, and I think some of those themes are things that we found really compelling.
1: Birds, bugs, bees, grass, flowers, and trees Teach people how to feel If I hear that you pine for me Like I said in the intro, you certainly can tell that even though we weren't familiar with this fairy tale, yeah. like the Japanese audience would have been, you definitely feel the the beats of a yeah. fairy tale. Especially
0: but, when they get to the the miraculous birth of this girl, and then like especially when like you got the five princes that all want to marry her, and they all go on missions. You know, that's uh-huh. very fairy tale. Yeah,
1: but what Takahata added to this was a real sense of trying to help the viewer relates with the princess. Mm-hmm. I think in the original version of the story, she's a little mysterious and like, you don't really know what. her. It's, it's more from her. the father's point of view. It's more like... Yeah, it's, it's called the tale of the bamboo cutter, not the tale of the princess yeah. in the original version. So this really puts you in her perspective, gives her perspective of, of all this. And
0: just gives you this love of... Ghibli does this in a lot of films. Just this love of nature, love of the cycles of the seasons, but then really contrasts it with the formal city life. Yeah. or Especially noble life. And there's this deep divide between being close to nature and free and being trapped and all the conventions of, I don't know, is feudal
1: Japan the right term? Or what What era is this? Uh, I think it's called the Haydn era. Okay. It's the era before the Meiji era, okay. what is, according to what I read. But
0: everything's very formal. Like when she becomes a princess, she has to go through all this different Beauty things and learning how to play the Kyoto and. Mm-hmm.
1: You will never be a noble princess looking as you do now.
0: Without eyebrows, the sweat will run into my eyes. Don't be ridiculous,
1: for a noble princess does nothing that will make her perspire. Come.
0: Why would I want black teeth? I wouldn't open
1: my mouth then, and I won't be able to laugh anymore. You won't have to worry about that, for a noble princess does not open her mouth to laugh. That's stupid. Even a noble princess must sweat and sometimes want to laugh out loud. Surely they want to cry or get mad and want to scream. Oh no, a noble princess should never show Then a noble princess is not human.
0: And there is that real tension because what it is it to be human? Which plays off with also that she's not actually fully human either. Yeah. But then there's this, and this sense of longing comes through really strongly, which I think is one of those themes that I think is we need more of that. that sense mm-hmm. of like, this world doesn't have everything we want. Mm. Sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. There's just so many interesting themes. There's here. so many you could do. Yeah. Like, like, it's easy to hop from one to the other. But I mean, the dealing with the conventions of nobility in a way that, like, is showing it to be limiting as opposed to living out of the country is interesting in that sense because we tend to think of. Asian cultures being well in some ways sticking to traditions yeah. and like you must embrace this, this is the way that is done sort of thing but this one really like like it embraces traditionalism as far as it relates to freedom yeah and living in the country but a lot of the other human customs is like this is this is silly why are we doing this yeah and it's also in its interesting contrast the expectations that are put on her as a noble person is almost what's feel like similar to how some people would put expectations on being enlightened. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we see toward the end of this movie, we won't go into a lot of detail, but we see some people that like a Buddha and some people that have the attitude of like an enlightened person, which looks very similar to the noble person. And yet here it's kind of shown like, but this is, this is not a human thing. This is not a as joyous as Kayuga would like to live.
0: Yeah. Which is
1: fascinating.
0: It is fascinating. And all these what's interesting with all these themes, because the script's great, but it also like it never goes quite where you think it's gonna go as a story. Like it's going in like, oh, these are beats of a fairy tale, but then it always kind of sidesteps slightly what you think it's gonna do. Not like a twist, but it keeps you interested. Yeah. Like, okay, what exactly is gonna happen now? Why why aren't you doing that? You know, it's interesting.
1: Yeah. It certainly feels like it's informed by the past than the original story, but some of these ideas definitely feel more modern. Not in a, like, we're so smarter than the past, but in, like, it feels like different things are emphasized mm-hmm. than would have been. But, but they're also,
0: like, one the critics say they're they're kind of eternal themes. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're twisted in a way that feels more like something we would wrestle with now than they would have wrestled with in the same way. Yeah, so it feels yeah.
1: very... Currents in that sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Current and ancient. It's, it, yeah, it's a very, it's a fascinating combination of a lot of different things. Yeah. And uh, we can't say, I guess we can't say much more without both going on for an hour <laughs> and um, spoiling the end.
1: Yeah. Which is, I guess, the the one other thing I would touch on again, that idea of the princess is in some ways the bird in a gilded cage yeah. sort of thing. And I think they actually, she's given a bird in a cage at some point yeah. and she sets it free because that's what she would like to be. Mm hmm. And it's also very tragic. Like the father has all these; he wants to do all these wonderful things for her. But is it how much is it for her, and how much is it for himself? It's
0: so. And watching him is so painful because, like, I think he really thinks he's doing her good. Yeah. But you're like, why can't you see? Uh huh. Which I guess is also a thing that happens a lot. We, we try to make people happy as we think they are. <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinary.
1: You would be one of His Majesty's wives. Not only that, I will wear the hat of a court official. <laughs> this is wonderful. Listen to you. You still don't comprehend how your daughter feels. It is you who doesn't understand. All that we have done has been for the sake of this. For a girl born in this land, there is no greater happiness than joining his majesty in holy wedlock. None. Oh, now at last, after all this effort, her highness will find me be happy. So, but fascinating to, movie. Fascinating movie. Again, tons we could talk about, but go see it for yourself. Yeah. So we've got uh, questions for each other.
0: Do you mind me going first? Go ahead. Okay, This one that came up, and I, it's not directly this movie, but it touches on, we watched this, we watched Eight and a Half, which is an Italian movie. What kind of suggestions or um, how should a viewer, reader, approach something from a different culture? How is the best way to go about be like, it's different watching this movie than an American movie, mm-hmm. and there's just gaps you have, or do you have any like, suggestions maybe that, like, what's the best way to attack something from a completely foreign point of view?
1: That's a very good question. The first thing that comes to mind is that it helps to have someone to guide you into Mm -hmm. a foreign cinema of some sort. This is certainly not the first Japanese film that we've seen. So having a door, someone to kind of open up a window into what this culture is like. I mean, ideally, if it's someone from that culture, that could be great. But sometimes the biggest hurdle into appreciating a foreign film is just that first... Strangeness of it,
0: just accept the strangeness and adjusting to it. Yeah, are you? I mean, like we watched... and again, this was more. I remember watching, say, Spirited Away, first time. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'd seen some Miyazaki, but that one was very very bizarre. Yeah, yeah. It's only it's like it takes a while for your brain to adjust, and I think it's a good thing. But do you think there's helpful? Say you watch it cold, should you just process it? Should you go and hunt down all your YouTube videos? Should you watch more stuff? Does it matter?
1: I mean, it depends on what you get interested in. I mean, I've watched very few Indian movies, mm-hmm. um, but my sister has seen a, a little bit. She's watched more Asian film in some ways and wider variety than I have. I think there is a comedy I watched with her a while back called three idiots. I think, Very interesting, but I was glad to have her and like she tell me a little bit about. Okay, yeah, this guy does this sort of movie a a fair bit, and yeah, so just having someone there at least for the beginning, and then if you get more interested, yeah, by all means go look up the YouTube video, look it up on Wikipedia. I mean I usually I usually go Wikipedia hunting after yeah. I've gotten to some of the okay, tell me more about this thing. I want to dive into it a bit.
0: It just a question that came up here at the end and see in part because this is a Japanese animation, which is different than we've done, but also because even these trips for me through these different eras of film, you're always stepping into a different culture. Yeah. I just think it's an interesting both to prepare yourself and also just know, okay, how do I deal with, you know, Italian cinema or silent films? or? And I think we're so used to doing the things we're familiar with.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think the easiest way is just to take the plunge. Like, it's always going to be a plunge when you're mm-hmm. trying something that's completely new to you.
0: And I guess I except guess the fact that there are things you might not understand, and that doesn't mean it's a dumb film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You should probably expect things to be there that you don't understand. But And I think it's probably also a good idea to start with think, something, don't just throw a dart against the wall. <laughs> uh, here, I'll watch uh, Battle Royale. That looks yeah. good. No, 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 don't do that. Uh, <laughs> Evangelion. <laughs> yeah. Find something that's critically acclaimed. Maybe even look up something that, like, a good starting point. Like, what's a good first Bollywood movie? Yeah. Whatever, or first, I don't know, Polish movie. I don't know anything about Polish. Yeah, summa, yeah. But- yeah. But if you're curious. So it's a
0: different sort of question. I just it was an interesting cap for the season, I thought. Sure, sure. Give me your second question now. Okay, well, okay, my second question can be either serious or unserious. So I, okay. I don't know. I got too like I didn't get super silly with this one because it's sure. um the serious version is did the dad not did he get off too easy? The silly version is, what's up with the dad? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, why is he so blind? Uh I mean, is that is it just his character or is it saying something? It's hard to say because this version of the story is not really about him. I'd be curious. No, but he's how... so frustrating. <laughs> I feel for him because, like I said, I think he just got carried away with himself. And, I mean, it's very funny to me that all the time we think he's misinterpreting the signs that he's been given. But the ending is like, no, maybe he actually was reading the signs correctly this whole time. It's just he got swept away with the idea of, I'm going to make her a princess. I'm going to get her all the things she wants. We're going to be just like all the other cool people. And I'm going to make her this way. And this is the way people do it. So, I guess, silly follow-up. What should the wife have done to the dad? (laughs) 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 well I can half imagine that after the end of the story there's going to be some might hold you so's going on (laughs) yes she she says early on something about like you don't know anything about raising a kid and he clearly didn't yes but he's trying his best he
0: he is and especially in the context of Japan at that time I think
1: he yeah yeah I just
0: it he's, he's probably the most I don't know about humorous character but a character that can be taken most humorously in some ways
1: yeah yeah all right, we're running long, so I think I've just have one question. I'll I'll give yeah, you if you could get Studio Ghibli to do any other fairy tale folktale. What would you like to see Studio Ghibli tackle? Brad, I have an answer that's not a folktale.
0: I've been thinking just this week, but um, okay, fairy tale. Let's do. Could be a Western one. It could be an Eastern one. If you know some, I don't know in my Eastern. Um, let's see. Oh, I know. I wish I knew enough details about it. I have this mythology book of um celtic myths i think it's the voyage of maladon or something like that but they just visit all these weird islands Ooh. and i've always found it it's just fascinating but i thought you know you could have i mean it's a little bit it feels like um voyage of dawn turtle was inspired at least from this sort of story okay sure um like there's one with just a giant eyeball on it and there's one i mean just weird stuff
1: yeah and i could see that
0: being Fascinating, Especially if someone also wrote it with adding a separate, a new meaning to it. But I think he's going out for revenge or something. Mm. Um, yeah, that doesn't feel ghibli much. No. But I, I'm not sure he actually gets the revenge. He might change because of Voyage. It's been a long time since I've read it. But it's one of those that I read and I'm just like, that is weird. But like really excited my, um, that my wonder mm-hmm. uh, meter. Sure. And I think Ghibli does really good with wonder meter.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> I'll go with that one. I like that. A voyage Ghibli movie. That, that would be something unique for yeah. them. I think a, a travel story. I don't think we've no, seen it. And I think with the right script it could be really cool. Now, so. do you keep it as a voyage or would should it be like a an airplane sort of expedition thing?
0: No, let's still do the voyage. I know keep it, I know Miyazaki okay. would put it on a plane, but I think the ocean vibe would be
1: interesting too. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I like it. just a little longer to feel the joy and happiness of living on this earth please don't take me away
0: all right tim did we like the movie Mm, it was all right <laughs> it was no, a great movie. We yeah, we really it's a top, enjoyed this top notch movie.
1: Yeah, it's one of those that will stick with you. I mean, Ghibli movies have long been some of my favorite movies yeah. that I've seen in the last twenty years, and this this ranks right up along there with some of the best of them. And it's beautifully artistic done, both from a visual standpoint. It's so unlike it, it's a sort of animated style that you would normally see in like a short or some real indie thing. Yeah, and this is a full for two on two hours plus. Yes, it's a full. feature. Feature movie, and the, it's very thematically rich. Yes, absolutely. And I, I feel like it would be even better second time. Actually,
0: yeah, in some ways, I guess just having that. processed it all. So we would recommend it to everyone or select audiences. I'd say anyone. I don't see any reason not to watch it unless you don't feel like a. I mean, it's somber by the end.
1: Yeah. So you know, go in knowing that for sure. I mean, you're going to have some people that like It's a little too somber for them, or it's just not like this is not going to be the sort of movie that my dad, who's more into more masculine kind of stuff, would be into. But that's really the only type of person I can see who I would not recommend this to.
0: (laughs) All right, go watch it, guys. That is our episode from 2013. We made it We made it all the way through the decade. Not the decade, sorry. All the way through the last hundred and
1: twenty years of film. Hundred and twenty years wow, of film. That's wow. crazy. We've covered a lot. It's crazy to, think, to me to think that we started recording this all the way back in May, I think. Wow, yeah. In we've been May. making our way through it. Yeah. So
0: slowly but surely. Yeah. So please uh subscribe if you have not for some reason on our various podcatchers. Visit our com, our website
1: mm-hmm. um, and look forward to God willing we will have an epilogue episode that will come out I think on December 29th yes. be the last Friday of the year. So much like we did last season I think we'll look back at this season's movies and rank them in order of essentialness essentialness yeah that's kind of our
0: theory yeah. yeah.
1: essentialness and also maybe our personal favorites
0: and it's a very different feel this season than last season
1: it really is and it'll be and we'll talk about that probably yes as well yeah 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 so hope you have enjoyed it so stay tuned and hope you have a Merry Christmas I'm sure this episode will come out early December yes and um yeah by the time this episode comes out we're hoping that i shall have a our baby will be here
0: possibly any day now
1: (laughs) as we record this as we record this it's
0: crazy all right until then guys thank you for listening through the season of let's finally watch this this has
1: been nick and this is tim adios bye-bye